0: My name's David. As you sit down, turn to your neighbor and say, God loves you, and I'm trying. What, what could you do? God loves you, I'm trying. Aren't we all? Hey, good morning, friends online or in the room. Apologize in advance for a few sniffles and sinus. Who knows there's snow at the end of April? I, I just can't figure it out. We're continuing in our series called Torn Today. And In a special way, I want to talk about this item, this instrument, this symbol right here next to me. You know, um, over the past decade, a new kind of movie genre has emerged, the prequel. It has become more and more popular, more prevalent in Hollywood from Star Wars to Spider-Man to the Lord of the Rings. Even Monsters University has a prequel, and now JT talked about it, The Batman. A prequel. Dictionary.com defines a prequel as a literary, dramatic, or cinematic work whose narrative takes place before that of a pre existing work or a sequel. A literary, dramatic, cinematic work whose narrative, the, the story it's telling, predicts or takes place before that of a pre existing work or sequel. I believe the Bible is full. Of prequels, especially in the Old Testament. Only they're called by another name. They're called prophecies. The prophets of God, the early prophets of God, were inspired to foretell the word and foretell the future. And they were inspired to write and predict what was yet to come. For example, Bible scholars have calculated that there are over 300 prophecies alone concerning the person and the passion of Jesus as the Messiah in the Hebrew scriptures, and they all came true, every single one of them. In fact, the odds of just seven, not 300 now, the odds of just seven of these being fulfilled accidentally or coincidentally in the life of one person are one one in 10 to the 17th power. One in 10 to the 17th power. For those of us like me from Kentucky, that's a pretty big number. It's one of the other reasons, by the way, it's one of the chief reasons why I believe the Bible is what it says. You could not, could not prophesy that thousands of years in advance and it come to pass just exactly as it did. But wouldn't it be nice to be able to see the future and what it holds? It might be kind of nice. Knowing who the next president might be, who will win the Masters Golf Tournament today, When and who will our children marry or our grandchildren? For me, what specific stocks, you know, right? Should I buy now that are going to do well in the market in two years? Will the Reds, Cincinnati Reds' new roster this year be any good? Opening day in Atlanta, I said yes, now I say no. (laughs) Most of us think that would be really good to know the future, that we would be richer and calmer, but maybe not. Actually, knowing what's ahead might not be as pleasurable as you think. Because I believe that if we did know what the future held, we might be tempted to avoid certain things because we knew, know it would bring us pain and heartache. And honestly, this is what makes me admire Jesus even more than I already do. He knew exactly what was going to happen in the future, the pain, the price involved, yet He still walked that road for us to Golgotha. And as we continue in our series right now this week called Torn in this Holy Week on Palm Sunday, we're looking at the final week of Jesus' life where so many of these prophecies, so many of these prequels are fulfilled. And today I want to focus on this right here because as you grow in the lord i've been following jesus i mean some of y'all got great testimonies like you were way far away from god and now you're close praise god for you and here's my testimony i grew up as a boy and fell in love with jesus and never left that's my testimony. I used to be a little jealous when people had like wild testimonies. You know what I found out? JT would say, Dave, you spared yourself a lot of trouble just having the testimony that you have. So the gospel, the ground at the foot of the cross is all equal. But as I have grown in being a Christian, I have to keep coming back to the cross because I'm so prone to take it for granted. I'm so prone to forget how significant it was about what happened there. And so today I wanna dive into the emotions, the dynamics associated with Jesus' death on the cross. And this message today, I'll just tell you up front, is a bit more somber. Because you can't look at that without being moved in your own emotions. You know, I was curious, so I did a little research on the most recognized logos or symbols right now in the U.S. Anybody want to guess which ones might make the top 10? Top 10 logos or symbols that are most well-known and appreciated. Okay, that's good. Let me put, put them up here for you. Here's what they are. Apple, Nike, Google, McDonald's, Coke, Pepsi, Starbucks. A lot of food items on there. I'll just say that. Mercedes Benz. Here was interesting. The swastika made the list. And Mickey Mouse and Disney. All kids would know that. Now, Uber and Airbnb, I found out, are gaining ground, just so you know, they're gaining ground. But for some reason, could we just talk? I I thought the cross would be somewhere on or near the top of that list. Uh, We see the cross on buildings. We see the cross in church buildings. We see the cross near highways. Some of us wear the cross as a necklace. We see it in movies. Clearly, the cross has not been forgotten because of a lack of use. But I got to thinking, maybe... Our culture, maybe our church has succumbed to the same problem I have. Maybe it's become so common today that it's lost its meaning. Perhaps there is a temptation to take the cross for granted as just another decoration or architectural design. But I'm here to tell you today, friend, this cross changes everything. This is the pivotal theme of the entire gospel message. It's the central theme of God's story, of your story, if you have a relationship with him. And just an FYI, the cross, if you were living in Jesus' day, the cross was not a symbol you would be wear or you would be proud of or want to be associated with. Back then, it was a sign of embarrassment, of defeat, of scorn. Nobody wanted to be associated with a cross. Nobody would wear one. So I want to show you today an amazing prequel to the cross. It's an actual account of Jesus' death in the Old Testament before the story actually took place in the New Testament. I like to call it the Passion Prequel. Any of y'all remember a few years ago back in 2003 seeing or going to the Passion of the Christ movie? Any of y'all remember? If you're younger, and maybe you haven't been born since back then, I'm telling you, go and see it it will change your life and your perspective. I remember when it first came out, we rented a whole movie theaters so our church, and bought tickets so our whole church could go as a group. If someone were to say to you prior to 2003 that a movie would come out with no recognizable stars in it, that it would have not a word of English, that the whole thing would be in Latin and Aramaic, and it would make back then something like $600 million, you would say that he was crazy. It turns out Mel Gibson is kinda of crazy, but anyway, There is something about that story of Jesus and the cross, though, that is timeless and people are so powerfully drawn to it regardless of who tells it or who hears it. That's why Jesus said in the scripture, if I be lifted high on that cross, I will draw all men and women to myself. There's something about this cross that changes us. So today I want to look at this notable passion prophecy. You may not realize it. It's found right next to probably the most loved psalm of all time, Psalm 23. I know you've heard Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. This passion psalm, this prequel is found in the previous chapter, Psalm 22. How familiar are you with Psalm 22? You should be. This psalm was written by David a thousand years before the birth of Christ. It describes the exact kind of suffering this savior experienced on the cross as he was literally torn for our salvation. For example, it tells us in Psalm 22, this passion prequel about all the different kinds of suffering that Jesus went through on our behalf. Verse one says there was relational suffering on the cross, relational suffering. Listen to what it says, the very first verse, Psalm 22. My God, my God, have you, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to you? This is the words of Jesus on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. By night, and I am, why, why is there silence here? You know, perhaps the greatest suffering that Jesus ever experienced, besides the physical, which we'll get to in a minute, was being separated from community with God. Now think about this. Jesus up until this moment, his entire existence, pre-earth and on earth, he, ne- he experienced constant perfect fellowship with his heavenly father. Then suddenly that sweet union was broken for the very first time as your sins and my sins were placed on him. This was fulfilled. This very prequel was fulfilled in Matthew 27. It says about the ninth hour when Jesus was on the cross, about the ninth hour, he cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you, what? Forsaken me. For one brief moment, the connection between father and son was severed and he was totally alone. Author Max Locato writes vividly of the abandonment of the son on the cross as he bore our sin. It's from the book, Six Hours, One Friday. If you're looking for a great book to read this holy week, man, this is the one. Here's what Max wrote. Here is the cup, my son. Drink it alone. God must have wept as he performed his task. Every lie, every lure, every act done in shadows was in that cup. Slowly, hideously, they were absorbed in the body of the son. The final act of incarnation, the spotless lamb, was blemished. And the king turns away from his prince. The undiluted wrath of a sin-hating father falls upon his sin-filled son. The fire envelops him. The shadows hide him. The son looks for his father, but the father cannot be seen. My God, why? Perhaps the most powerful, gut-wrenching cry of loneliness in history. And it came not from a prisoner or a widow or a patient. It came from a hill, from a cross, from a Messiah. My God, he screamed, why did you abandon me? He writes, never have words carried such hurt. Never has one being been so lonely. The despair is darker than the sky overhead. The two who have been one are now two. There was relational suffering, the likes of which Jesus and we will never understand. But this Psalm prequel in Psalm 22 also says there was emotional suffering on the cross. Look at what it says here in the next verse. But I am a worm. Now, I'm going to come back to that. Some of y'all, that's the way you see yourself. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's one thing to be on a cross. It's another to have people who walk by hurl taunts and insults at you when you could come down and take care of business. Interesting word, the Hebrew word translated worm there in verse 6. It's the Hebrew word tola, the word we get that, that we use for crimson or scarlet. That's how they called it. Worm or tola was crimson or scarlet. Most likely referring to the bloody red condition of the Messiah after the entire crucifixion experience. Notice here that he was the object of derision, scorn, and insult, which is why we see this prequel. This verse in Psalm 22 fulfilled in Matthew 27. It says, those who passed by, imagine this, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if, if you are the son of God. <laughs> they didn't want him to come down. Trust me. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. Have you ever been insulted or treated as less than? Ever wanna retaliate? Jesus' restraint is remarkable. Because for me, I would have a different response. That's the human response. When something bad happens to you, when something inhumane happens to you, when something you don't deserve happens to you, you desperately want to retaliate, don't you, in some way? And we wanna get them good, payback. I heard about an engaged soldier serving back in world war two, who got a dear John letter from his girlfriend back in the U S with this note attached. It said, I have found another man. Send my picture back so I can use it for the engagement announcement for the newspaper. He was discouraged until his army buddies heard about it and went out and gathered several pictures of other female soldiers in his unit and he sent them all back to his ex-fiancee with this note. Would love to send your picture back, but for the life of me, I can't remember which one you are. (laughs) That's the way I do business. Not Jesus. He was slighted. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. First Peter says this, 1 Peter 2, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He did not open his mouth. Relational suffering, emotional suffering. Imagine the, the emotion of that moment suspended between heaven and earth, enduring that. Verse 14 and 15 in Psalm 22, this prequel, though, also describes the physical suffering Jesus experiences as well. Listen to what this says. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away from me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. It's describing beginning to describe some of the physical torment and suffering that Jesus went through on that old rugged cross. Medical experts tell us that there are six varieties of wounds that a person can receive in their body. One is abrasive wound where the skin is scraped off. If you look at Jesus, check. There's a contusion wound caused by a heavy blow, check. There is an incised wound produced by a knife, a spear, or other sharp instrument, check. There's a lacerated wound where the flesh is torn, leaving jagged edges. Check. There's a penetrating wound where the flesh is pierced right through. Check. And a punctured wound made by a pointed or spiked object. Jesus Christ, on the cross and on the way to the cross, suffered all six of these wounds during his execution. Actor Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in the movie The Passion of the Christ, wrote that he suffered even while filming, he was struck by lightning more than once. He said, carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem, he fell separating his shoulder, the harsh Italian weather. He writes and grueling days on this set contributed to his battles with pneumonia and hyperthermia during the brutal whipping scene. As it was filmed, he writes the actors playing Roman guards accidentally missed the board protecting his back. They did that twice causing severe pain and wounds. During the filming of the crucifixion scene, Caviso wrote that he hung on a cross that was buffeted by stiff winds. He writes that the cross swayed as much as three feet in either direction, aggravating his shoulder injury. And that was when Caviezel wondered if he had made a mistake. He said, for the first time, I started questioning whether I had done the right thing in making this film. More importantly, I wondered whether it would be possible for me to actually finish the film. I actually had the thought, this cross is killing me. For Jesus, it actually did. Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, was spit on, slugged, slapped by members of the Sanhedrin. He was literally torn. They soon twisted that crown of thorns and thrust it on him so his brow was punctured deeply by the long thorns and briars. Have you forgotten the suffering of Jesus? Jesus' face must have been swollen, his eyes black, his nose bloodied by those abusive Roman soldiers anxious to punish this insurrectionist. And then they had him flogged. Early historians assert that scourging, flogging, was the most dreaded punishment of all time. Many didn't even survive the flogging to make it to the cross. Bits of lead and stone made the whip a brutal slashing instrument of terror, ripping a man's back, his legs to shreds. Occasionally, even tearing out an eye or slicing open an ear. Jesus truly was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And then beyond that, as if that wasn't enough, He was forced to carry his own heavy, splintery cross, rubbing against those raw shoulders, falling multiple times along the way. No wonder Isaac Watts, great songwriter of yesteryear, wrote these in the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love And sorrow, meet, or thorns compose, so rich a crown. One ancient writing discovered says that when Mary, the mother of Jesus, was escorted to the three crosses at Golgotha, she asked, which one is he? So brutal was his beating, his own mother didn't recognize it. Have you forgotten the cross? When we come to verse 16 in this prequel, we encounter one of the most remarkable prequels and prophecies of all. I love this. Dogs surround me. I'm glad he called them dogs. I would have called them worse. Dogs surrounding me. A pack of villains encircles me. Now, check this out. They pierce, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, keep in mind those words I just read to you, those words in Psalm 22 were written a thousand years before the birth of Christ and 700 years before the Romans even introduced crucifixion as a method of execution. Yet David predicted exactly that the Messiah would have his hands and his feet pierced. The method of execution in David's day was stoning. So this is a powerful testimony, friend. Those, some of us struggling with our faith. This is a powerful testimony to the accuracy and the authority of the Word of God. Verse 17 in Psalm 22 says, "'I can count all my bones. People stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing.'" And this was fulfilled exactly at the cross, friend. If you remember the account, this is Holy Week. I encourage you to read that last week of Jesus' life. At the cross, they gambled for the only material thing Jesus owned. This was predicted hundreds of years before Jesus came. No way could he have manipulated this prophecy if this was all fake news. All throughout this powerful passion prequel, we get this clear picture of the suffering, the abandonment, the humiliation that Jesus would suffer, right on down to the last verse. Let me read you the last verse of the Passion prequel. This is strong. I've read it for years. I didn't see it. Here's what it says. It says, they will, they will, the people, proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn. Who are the people yet unborn? You and I. He saw us back then. When he was on the cross, we were on his mind, even back then. And notice these last four words of the passion prequel in Psalm 22. He has done it. He has done it. That phrase he had done it in the Hebrew literally says and means, it is finished. Jesus' very last words from the cross. That fact alone has led some scholars to believe that as Jesus hung on the cross, he very well may have quoted all of Psalm 22, beginning with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and ending with the words, It is finished. And when the witnesses of the cross saw that, they simply wrote down the opening and closing words, which were then recorded in our gospel account. Now, that seems appropriate too, because Jesus began his ministry by quoting scripture to Satan in the wilderness, and now he probably ended his ministry on earth, his life at least, by quoting scripture on the cross. What was Jesus thinking and saying when he was on the cross and we were on his mind? Psalm 22. He was saying the scripture. I don't care what kind of problem you're going through today. Nothing you're going through is compared to what Jesus went through. The quoting of scripture, letting it wash over your mind will help you with your own problem, your own persecution. By the way, when Jesus says it is finished, let me remind you, it's so you and I could say I'm not finished because before the cross, we were finished without any kind of atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, the Bible says. The prophet Isaiah, another great Old Testament prequel, wrote a beautiful and significant account of what happened on the cross. It's found in the 53rd chapter of the Old Testament book that bears his name. Keep in mind, as I, you hear these words, this was written 700 years before Jesus came on planet earth. Isaiah says, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet he was, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Have you forgotten the cross, friend? History tells us that around the time when Jesus was a teenager, there was a huge rebellion among the Jews in Palestine against the authority of Rome. And the Romans, as they were notorious to do, crushed the rebellion easily. And to make sure it didn't happen again, they decided to crucify an Israelite every 10 meters along the road for a distance of 16 kilometers. Now imagine the sight of some 1,700 people dead or dying in agony on crosses, spaced every 30 feet for 10 miles. They knew how to crucify. That must have made an incredible impression on the mind of a teenage Jesus Yet he still walked the way for you and I. Jesus knew from the beginning what the future and what that cross had in store for him. And maybe that's why he prayed so emotionally in the garden. uh, um, Jerrica talked about it last week when she said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. There are emotions in this moment for you and me, but for him. He chose the nails because he chose you. He could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him, but he didn't. And it wasn't steel spikes that held him to that tree. It was love for you and me. The passion prequel we have discussed today tells us four things about Jesus' death. As you go through this holy week on Palm Sunday and we get ready for the resurrection weekend, which, man, don't miss that Saturday. It's going to be great but before you have the tomb, you got to have the cross. Before you have the crown of life, you got to have the crown of thorns. And as you go through this week, I want you to remind yourself whenever you see a cross, whenever you wear a cross, I want you to remind you of these four things. We cannot forget this. Number one, it was a painful death. Death by crucifixion included unimaginable. Pain and suffering, dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, public shame, and then that long, slow, agonizing death. Friend, I know this is sickening, but sacrifice cannot be sanitized. It's a bloody thing to see someone crucified. Sacrifice is always bloody. That's the point. He shed his blood so you wouldn't have to shed yours. And it just seems to me that the cross should truly prompt us to ask, what have I really done compared to him? What have I really sacrificed for him based on what he did for me? I mean, what kind of scars do you have for the kingdom? From time to time, I will, over my 20 years here, I will have someone That I'll be talking to and I'll ask someone to get involved in the work of the church or the ministry of Jesus. And more than once, I've had someone say something like this. Pastor Vaughn, I don't believe we can do that. We got work. We got kids sports. We got travel we want to do. I got different meetings and activities and clubs. We just don't want to get tied down. Let me see if I got this straight. Jesus was willing to be nailed down for you. But you don't want to be tied down for him. Now, I didn't say that in my earlier days, but I say it now. (laughs) The Bible says that we as Christ followers are to crucify the flesh and our own selfish ways and desires to follow him. Because if we share with him in his death, we'll also share with him in life. Friend, it was a painful death. Have we forgotten the cross? Number two was a voluntary death. Jesus said that he freely laid down his life of his own accord. He didn't have to stay on that old rugged cross. He chose to. Jesus said in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Let me ask you a question. Would you willingly volunteer for this? Or as a father, would you volunteer your son? It was a voluntary death. Number three, it was a unique death. Many have died, but no one died like Jesus died. Several things made it one of a kind. There was darkness from noon to 3 p.m. Now, I know it gets dark in Cincinnati, cloudy, nothing like this. Complete darkness for three hours. Douglas Webster said, at the birth of Jesus, there was brightness at midnight, and at the death of Jesus, there was darkness at noon. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, huge curtain, very high, very thick. It separated man from entering into the presence of God. And when Jesus died, that temple curtain was torn in two, top to bottom. If man was going to do it, be from bottom to top. We worship a God who continues to tear down barriers to reach us. The cross was the bridge on which we walked. The Bible says there was an earthquake at precisely the moment of Christ's last breath. I don't think that's a coincidence. And here's a little known obscure verse that I would have loved to have been there to see. Matthew says that there was this resurrection of the saints. Matthew says the tombs broke open when Jesus died. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life, came out of the tombs and went into the holy city. It appeared to many people. Imagine that. You're walking down the road and you think, that looked like granddad. I I think I was at his funeral four years ago. Well, they're so and so, they're so and so. Can you imagine being there for that moment? Oh, what a unique death and a precursor, another prequel for Jesus coming out of his tomb. And friend, when Jesus, if Jesus got out of his tomb, he'll help you out of yours. You don't have to experience a cross. Because Jesus has already done that for you. And most important of all, it was a painful death and a voluntary death, a unique death. It was an atoning death. 1 Corinthians 1 is a foundational verse for me. I'm using these last few months as the lead role of, of your pastor just to remind you of the fundamentals, the things that got us to where we are. Remind you of the fundamentals, the basics of the faith, the things on which my ministry has been built on and this church is built on. And 1 Corinthians 1 says this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In a day when a lot of churches don't want to talk about the cross, it's too gruesome, it's too bloody, we got to talk about it more. Paul said, I come to you. I don't want to know anything, he said, other than Jesus Christ crucified. Forget me. Think about him. Have we forgotten the cross? He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, every one of you watching online and in this room have a need for atonement. Jesus died on that cross for what you did last night, for what you already did this morning, for what you will do again. The cross of Christ provides completely that atonement you're looking for, your new beginning. At the cross, sin was vanquished. It was paid for. Big, long, biblical, theological words like redemption and reconciliation and justification and propitiation. How about that? I said that. They were realized, and nowhere do we see God's ability to use evil for good more than at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart, my sin, rolled away. It was an atoning death. And some of us, we need atonement. Have you forgotten how special that cross is? You know, one of the makes Jesus' death unique and different, I think, than any other in human history, is because it changes hearts and lives for good. The centurion who was at the foot of the cross watching all this that day was the first of many to say this, after seeing all of the earthquake and the tombs open in darkness, the centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. And he was just the first in a long line of people who have accepted and appreciated and applied the death of Jesus and were truly changed, are truly changed, will be truly changed. And growing up in the church, seeing the cross a lot I wonder if I got too familiar with that price, the pain, the suffering that was there. What was bought for David Vaughn, the person, not David Vaughn, the preacher. And you know, the cross motivates us, I think, does it not? Does it not motivate us not to complain so much? I don't care what kind of problem you got right now. I don't care who's persecuting you. I don't care what burden, I don't care how heavy life is for you right now compared to what Jesus Christ just, I just described, did for you. We have nowhere, no one to complain about. We are to pick up our own cross and follow him, but the cross should inspire us to do more than we are doing, to give because he gave, to serve because he served. I just think the cross right-sizes any problem you think is big right now. Because compared to what he did for you out of love, you don't have any problems. A couple of years ago when COVID was kind of at the height of criticism for me, I got a note from a friend and I laminated it so I could refer to it and remember it. He wrote, I know last year was hard on you, and I cannot take away the pain of what people can cause. But we need to look at the cross. Jesus let people beat him, mock him, spit on him, and nail him to a cross, all for love of us. I know we will never be able to achieve that level of love, but it does help to ease the pain. Just when I thought I had it bad, I forgot That if I just look at the cross, it right-sizes my attitude all over again. And so today, I think this is the perfect moment, the perfect Sunday to just stop talking and remember his crucifixion through communion today. So if you got communion when you came in the room, I'm going to talk about it a little bit longer today. If you didn't have it, please raise your hand. Some of our team uh, members will serve you in the room. Just keep your hand up if you're watching online. Get the bread and the juice. And as these are being passed out, we take communion every week. It's so commonplace. When we eat this bread and drink this juice, remembering his body and blood, I don't know if we really can comprehend. Maybe today has been helpful. Maybe this is new information for some of you. You know, I just gave you the gospel story, friend. (laughs) Jesus came, he lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose again, and he's coming back again for those who have a relationship with him. That's the gospel message. The cross is the gospel message. It's why we exist. And every time we take communion. There should be a part of you that looks back to the old rugged cross. And I am motivated by just three small words that Jesus uttered as some of his last on the cross Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Didn't call for revenge, didn't call for backup didn't curse the ones who taunted him, he prayed for them. When his accusers took him out in a courtyard and began to whip him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When they blindfolded Jesus and began to taunt him and kick him and slap him and say mockingly, you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When Pilate said, I find no fault in this man and yet handed him over to be crucified. How ironic. Pilate satisfied the wrath of the crowd. Jesus was on a mission to satisfy the wrath of God. Father, forgive them. When the soldiers were doing the nails in his hands and feet, every time the blow of the hammer came down, Father, forgive them. And for 21 centuries, echoing across the ages, echoing across our sins, we hear the words today still, Father, forgive them. So as we have the bread and the juice, I'd ask you to just look at the cross, for that is what we are remembering. He gathered with his disciples with the shadow of the cross on his mind and broke bread and said, take eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for you. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. friend." The powerful and the positive thing about the crucifixion is that this shameful symbol of suffering, the cross, was soon turned into a trophy of triumph. And don't you think next week we're going to sing a little bit about that triumph? The triumph of cross-shaped love. Historians differ on the shape of the cross I choose to think it's like this for several reasons. Some thought it was like an X. I think it's like this because I think it's the ultimate symbol of reconciliation. There's a vertical beam and at the cross, relationship, community was restored between God the Father and us. The Son of God became the Son of Man so sons and daughters of men could become sons and daughters of God. There's vertical restoration. But then horizontally on the crossbar, there is relational, horizontal restoration. Since he loved this way, how could we not love those around us, our brothers, our sisters, people who are far from us are brought near because of the cross. Huge cosmic redemptive strides Jesus made for us on the cross. Have you forgotten the cross? Now, strangely, Satan thought he had won. Golgotha, though, was not the final chapter. (laughs) You might have a cross on Friday, but, friend, we're going to celebrate a grave, an empty grave on Sunday. And what a bundle it will be coming up. So don't forget, next weekend, pray about that. This whole week, I'd ask you to think about the painful death, the voluntary death, the unique death, the atoning death of Jesus As you go through your week, as you get ready for Big Daddy Weave, as you get ready even for the week after Easter, which is, that's just as important. It's all in weekend where people go all in with their faith by being baptized, which by the way, is connected to the cross. People think baptism is about the water. It's not. It's about the blood and the cross. If it weren't for the blood and the cross, it's just water. That just symbolizes where the blood and the forgiveness meets your life. Because when Peter got up to do the very first all-in service in Acts 2 in history, before he talked about repent and be baptized, here's what he said. This same Jesus you crucified is now Savior and Lord. What are you going to do about Jesus? Don't forget about the cross in Jesus. So, friend, I'll be praying for you this week. And every time you see a cross, wear a cross, have a cross, thank God for what he did right there. Don't forget to cross. Father, many things I have taught and preached in 20 years, and I don't think there could be any one more important that I would indelibly burn in the collective and individual minds of people other than the cross of Jesus Christ. It is what we preach here. It is what you told us to preach And God, as we just sing one more song about that gospel message, I pray, God, it might convict us and convince us that the world needs to hear this more. And maybe there is someone watching here or in this room, and for the very first time, they've heard the good news that they don't have to pay for their sin. Someone else paid for it already. And for those of us who grew up in the church like me, May we never take that forgiveness for granted because it came at a high price. And may we reacclimate our life again around the sacrifice of the Holy One. And so we thank you now for this in Christ's name. Amen.